After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Achilla. At Sincrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a little longer, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of him, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he, had re he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the spirits, in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being ferv fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Achilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This morning we sang the song, Ancient Word, Changing Me and Changing You. We have come with open hearts, so let the ancient words impart. We've gathered here for the Word of God to do life change. We've gathered here to be transformed into the image of Christ, so let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the time that we could meditate on the gospel, that we could meditate on your everlasting words. We can meditate that you are our solid rock and our fortress on, we, on uh, whom we stand. We just ask now that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful truth from your word. Would you unite our heart to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, recently I tried to teach my children the idea of many hands make light work. This is the idea that we all heard and we know of, is that if we all do our part, there's going to be less to do for everybody. So as a good father, I took my six-year-old, four-year-old, and two-year-old and sat them down and had a business meeting with them. I pulled out Ezra's piggy bank, took out all the quarters, and started explaining what it would look like in our home using the illustration of quarters because we sometimes have an issue with cleaning up at our house, and no one ever complains about it. And I said that this stack of quarters that we have, it represents our whole house. And I slid the whole stack of quarters to Ezra, and I said, Ezra, how long do you think it would take you to clean the whole house? And under his six-year-old breath, he calculated too long. I said, okay, well, now let's divide the quarters in half. I'll give half to Catalea and half to Aria. You'll clean half the house, she'll clean half the house. Is that better? He said, yes. I said, Ezra, even better, I will take these quarters and divide them. I'll give some to Aria, four to Aria, four to Ezra, four to Catalea, four to, four to Daddy. Does that sound good? How quickly do you think we can do this work? 
And he said, that's great. Then we can move on and do fun stuff like play outside and scooter and play games. And so I was trying to teach them the lesson of many hands make light work. That when we each do our part, there is less to do for everybody. Now, there's a key thing that I'm not mentioning yet is that before we even have to do the work or they have to do the work, there's one important thing that I must have already done beforehand. And the important key thing that I must have done already was to train them how to do this, to train them how to clean the living room, to train them where to put the toys and which boxes and how to organize it, how to put the dishes away from the dishwasher onto the shelf. There's a certain amount of training that must occur before they actually do the work themselves. And I can't tell them to do it and expect, to do it, expect them to do it accurately or properly. And we all know in the past, uh, when you've tried that, you know how that turns out. Not so well. And so when we look at our passage this morning, we see that Paul has trained Aquila and Priscilla to do the work. This is what we see in our passage. Paul met Aquila and Priscilla about a year and a half earlier. In Corinth, they were there with him for one and a half years. He's trained them, and as we read, he leaves them in Ephesus, and he continues to Antioch. The, not only so, Achille and Priscilla, they go on and they train Apollos, instructing him more accurately, and he then continues the mission from, uh, from Ephesus to Achaia, where Corinth is. Now, this is what we see here is the Great Commission coming to fruition that Jesus has already told us, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so Paul is committed to this model of training people in ministry. And why is he doing this? this is because this is the model that Christ himself has left. Christ was ministering to the multitudes, but he was also ministering to the few. He was ministering to the twelve, and even among the twelve, there were three who were in the inner circle. Gospel growth would not be happening if there was no training. So I entitled the sermon, Discipleship 101, Christ's Sovereign Building of His Church. Now, obviously, a question comes to mind, what is discipleship? And before we even get to discipleship, the question is, what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is a learner, a follower. In modern day, we would call a disciple a follower probably on Instagram. They want to become like the person that they are following. And this is visible in all of our lives, really through family. Children become like parents, whether you like it or not. <laughs> because more in life is caught than it is taught. And so our children are little disciples of us. They are our followers. They are our students. And they imitate us, whether it is good or bad, it is naturally passed over because they live with us. And so there are also, just like there are stages in training up children, there are stages in discipleship. And I want to share a few of them in this diagram that I want you to see of the four stages of discipleship. I believe we excel in certain one of these areas, but in other areas we need to grow. We often hear about the outreach aspect of discipleship. Right? That's the first step, the sharing the gospel at our workplaces, school, or anywhere where God gives us opportunity. Then the follow-up is when somebody comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they're baptized. We're pretty good at growth, the aspect of discipleship, because of the teachings and the fellowship groups that we have, one-on-one -on -one or small groups. 
But what about training? The last step of discipleship, the idea of duplication. You're, you duplicate yourself in ministry so that your workload is lightened, so that you can move on into different areas of ministry. And this is what we see Paul doing here. You see, training is the stage when we're moving people from running programs to building people, from running events to training people, from using people to growing people, and from filling gaps to training new workers. I want you to see it on the screen so that you can follow along with me. So we are looking out from running programs to building people. We're not just trying to ask people to do certain ministries, whether it's music ministry or kids ministry or ushering, but we want to build people. Not just running events, to, but to training people. Not just using people, but growing people. Not just filling in the gaps and asking, can you fit into this ministry? But to training new workers. And this is the model that we typically have seen and that we currently see in church. There's a lot of programs. There's a lot of places where you can fit into. And typically, when you enter a church, you ask the question, well, what can I do? Where do I fit? But we see here the training aspect goes beyond just the practical aspects of training, but it is the training of the character. It is the training that leads to gospel growth. So to define training, it is the stage of Christian growth in which people are equipped and mobilized and resourced and encouraged to do that work. And this is a paradigm shift. It's really saying that the church is not a grocery store, but a garden. A garden takes time to grow. It takes time to grow people to mature them. The grocery store is simple. You just show up and you just take what's there. The church is not a microwave, but a crock pot. We want to slow cook our disciples so that they're not just burnt on the outside and look like they're done, but raw on the inside. We want people to grow and mature and become like Christ. Our goal is not to move people quickly into various positions, but train them for that ministry. And the time of training is a time when believers take off the bib and they put on the apron and they are ready and willing to serve. It's when believers are sent out into the field just as doctors are sent to practice on cadavers. And as I was thinking about it this morning, as looking at our passage, I realized this is the harder aspect of discipleship. And this is why oftentimes it is neglected in churches. Because it takes more time. Because it takes years. Because it's not always quick results. Because heart change and Christ-likeness doesn't happen overnight. There is growth. Because it is also more tedious. Have you ever worked with somebody in a ministry or tried to disciple someone and it took a certain a few months? Maybe you're counseling someone and it's taking you a number of months, but not only that, you're moving into years of working with somebody. You're moving them from spiritual infancy to maturity. But we see that as a church, we want to be about this kind of ministry because Christ was about this kind of ministry. He had 12 men who lived with him for three years before he went on to Calvary, and then he ascended and he left them to continue in the church. How were they able to do that? Well, because they were living with Christ. They saw him in the various aspects of life. And this is why Paul is continuing to do the same thing. It is slow. It is life on life. And therefore, my proposition this morning is this. Commit to biblical discipleship as the key element in partnership for gospel growth. Commit. Because it is sometimes harder, we need to commit. We're committing to discipleship. 
We're committed to the, all aspects of discipleship, including training, because this is a key element in partnership, and that's what we see in our passage. Because Paul partners with Aquila and Priscilla, and then he can leave them at Ephesus before he continues going and moving on. And it ultimately causes gospel growth. As we look at our passage this morning, it's divided into three key people. Each different, but they're contributing to the greater gospel growth. They all have their unique gifts and unique abilities. We see a couple and we see two single men. First, we see Paul in the first verses 18 through 23. He's a zealot and he's single. He's an opponent of revival of the church turned, turned apostle. Then we see Priscilla and Aquila. In verses 18 to 19, we, I would call them the blue-collar workers. They're the tent makers. The uh, first power couple turned missionaries accompanying, accompanying Paul into Ephesus. They are a family team on mission. Then we see Apollos, and I nicknamed Apollos the college professor. <laughs> He's single. He grew up in the city of Alexandria, turned gospel proclaimer. And we see in our passage, Luke has covered a large amount of ground in a short amount of verses. We're moving from Corinth to Ephesus to Jerusalem to Antioch and then to Galatia. We see the words came, left, departed, arrived, constantly being used because what Luke is trying to show us is that the gospel is moving forward, people are being trained, and Christ is being exalted because the gospel is spreading. And we see a lot of things happening. Paul is finishing the end of a second missionary journey, beginning his third. We see Priscilla and Aquila are trained by Paul. And we see that Apollos begins in Ephesus and moves to Ikea. And my desire is that as we're done with this passage, we see that God works by using trained men and women in the faith. And that if we want to be more impactful as a church in our commitment to the Great Commission, training must be the desire of our hearts. So let's first begin with Paul in our initial verses here. Paul, the apostle and discipler, the single apostle on mission. So first, let's look a little bit at his journey as we look at the map. We see here that in Acts 18, 18 to 21, Paul desires to set sail for Syria. Syria is the region where Antioch is, which is the church that sends him off to go on a second missionary journey. But before he gets there, we see that he begins in Corinth. From Corinth, he crosses to Ephesus. That is where he leaves Aquila and Priscilla. Then he goes down to Caesarea, which is the port for Jerusalem. He then goes up to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he goes to Antioch. And from Antioch, then he goes to Galatia. And so Antioch was his sponsoring church. This is where chapter 15 ended, where they had a dispute about John Mark. And the purpose of the second, second missionary journey was to return, as Paul says, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word and see how they are. And this is, in a sense, what he's going to go do now. He's going to do that, but first he's going to take a pit stop at Sencre and Ephesus. As we're looking at Paul, the apostle and disciple, the question becomes, how does Paul do ministry? Does Paul train people? Or does Paul simply evangelize? Does Paul grow people? Or does Paul simply evangelize? And the first thing we see is that Paul trains Aquila and Priscilla. Now, I thought to myself, what a training ground. Paul stayed many days longer, in verse 18, and then took leave of the brothers. Where was he at? Last week we studied that he was in Corinth. 
And we know that Corinth would have been a very interesting training ground for Aquila and Priscilla. We know this because of the letter that he writes in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the issues that the church had. We can only imagine the things that were going on there. Family counseling issues to resolve, counseling people through idolatry, issues of rampant sexual immorality. It's just Christianity 101. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And so living with Paul over this year and a half, well, we don't know exactly when they started the ministry with him, but we know that over this time, right, they began ministering with him. They probably learned a lot. And so as Paul sets sail, because he has duplicated himself to a certain degree, Achille and Priscilla continued to witness in Ephesus until he returns about two, um, sometime later on his third missionary journey. But one of the things is that he can leave comfortably. He can leave comfortably knowing that they will press on and continue to do the ministry. Somehow they began to, they began, um, they've become his companions in ministry. Because in verse 18, he set sail, and here Luke adds, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And the first thing we see from this model is that training begins with a few. Paul took with them Aquila and Priscilla. Probably taught others and trained others as well as he was in Corinth for 18 months, but he focused on them. And this is quality over quantity. This is how Jesus began with his ministry. He was concerned with a few men, the few men that the multitudes would follow, and this is the key. He was concerned investing time into the few men that the multitudes would then follow. Paul begins in Corinth ministering to the multitudes, but he's also ministering to the few. You see, the reality is that when there are a few, the more concentrated the group, the greater the opportunity for instruction, more conversations, deeper focus, probably more questions, and it's more personalized. And this is the first priority of the church, to train the few that the multitudes would follow. I'm glad that here, as I've become part of Gateway Bible Church, I get to see that, the training of the few. Even now, as Chris is going to seminary and being trained to do ministry, I see training going on in various other areas of the church. Now, second, we see that training happens via demonstration. Class is always in session. As Achille and Priscilla are living life alongside Paul, whatever comes into the life of the church, they see it. Undoubtedly, they saw Paul's life, his reaction to trials, his time of prayer. They ate meals together. This is living life. And look with me at what Paul says in Corinthians. I'll just read it to you. Because the lack at times is not the teaching, but it is the Father's. Right? Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. What's the difference between teachers or guides versus a father? Father is somebody who comes alongside you. A father is somebody who is there long term. A father is somebody who is caring. A father is somebody you can imitate. Therefore, Paul often says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As you're imitating, you're forming into the person that you're watching. And a few more practical things that happen in demonstration is they're you usually spend time with people. So he's, he was with them. He modeled how to live. He was an example. In service, he gave them things to do. You become, to a certain degree, an employer. 
In terms of teaching, he taught and corrected them, being an exhorter. And so the ultimate point of this is that we, as followers of Christ, must be around people who have been with Jesus. Paul had been with Jesus. And now Aquila and Priscilla are following and coming alongside Paul. And this is the goal of discipleship, is that we must be around people who are with Jesus, people who maybe are more mature than we are, who are growing and who are in Christ walking with him. And so the first thing that Paul does, he trains Aquila and Priscilla. Second thing we see that Paul praises God for his ministry at Corinth. In verse 18, the second half, we see that Paul says he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And my question is, Luke, what does a haircut have to do with anything? It's like in passing, he's saying he just went to Sencre and he got a haircut. What? <laughs> what is going on here? What, what kind of significance does this have? Well, here he clearly says he was under a vow. He gives us a hint. It's not just a haircut, but it's abstaining from strong drink and strict purity, and this is all part of the Nazarite vow. Now, such a vow was taken for one of two reasons. Number one, it was to seek a blessing for something that was to come after, which would have been Paul going to Jerusalem and then Antioch and then Galatia, or a vow was taken to express thanksgiving for a past blessing. Now, in the immediate context, we see here that Paul was afraid when he was at Corinth, and what did God tell him? He said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in the city who are my people. And so, Paul is thanking God for the one and a half years of ministry in Corinth. This vow that he takes is to express thanksgiving for a past blessing. Now, what's interesting in all of this is that although he is an apostle to the Gentiles, he is ministering to the Jews as well. In his mission to the Gentiles, he has not abandoned his Jewishness. He writes that to the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, that I might win those under the law. The Nazarite vow showed his piousness, but also displayed that this was not in conflict with his identity in Christ through the gospel. And to a certain degree, Luke is prepping us for the third missionary journey where Paul will be among a lot of Jewish people. Like in the next chapter, we read that he's at Ephesus, he enters the synagogues, and for three months he speaks boldly. So Paul goes to Sencre, it's about six and a half miles east of Corinth, and gets a haircut there. Paul is thinking about the greater good of the gospel. He has different backgrounds. He has a background of Jewishness. We come from different backgrounds. Paul could have completely cut ties and forgot his Jewishness, but he keeps it for what? For the purpose of gospel growth. To reach different people with the gospel. So Paul trains Aquila and Priscilla. He praises God for his ministry, but also he entrusts himself to God's will. They came to Ephesus in verse 19, and he left them there, and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So what Paul does every time, he goes to the city, comes to the synagogue, he's reasoning with the Jews, now, they ask him to stay a period longer, but he declines. And when he declines, he says, I will be, I will return to you if God wills. And he sets sail for Ephesus. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, well, Paul, you haven't been here to Ephesus yet. 
Why would you not stay here to further the gospel? Or maybe, Paul, why wouldn't you just stay here because you have Aquila and Priscilla, you've trained them, it's easier to do work together, it's just more comfortable? But we see here that Paul is about doing the Lord's will. He's already on his way to Antioch, and so he also needs to stop by Jerusalem to finish his Nazarite vow and, and offer the proper sacrifices. But there's a strong contrast here. He says, but on taking leave of them, he said, right? I'll return to you if God wills. He's dependent on God to make this happen. This is a lifestyle that Paul has because Paul is on mission. In 1 Corinthians 4, we read, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not to talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Don't you think Paul wanted to refute the people that were speaking ill of him at Corinth? Don't you think he would have said, okay, I'll be right there. And I'm going to fix the situation in the church. No, he doesn't do that. He says, if God wills, I'll come back and then we'll have a conversation. In the meantime, I'm sending you a letter. In Romans 1, we read that always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now last succeed in coming to you. He was a man on mission and his lifestyle was to fulfill the mission of Christ. He's not seeking to build his own kingdom. He's not seeking to do his own will. And as we've been studying through the book of Acts, I've been convicted. And I've been asking this question, how often do I think about Christ's kingdom and building his kingdom? How much do I think of gospel growth versus thinking about my to-do list on Monday, my aspirations, vacations, the things of life? These things are good, but as we were thinking about it last week at home group, I was just, or a couple weeks ago, I was wondering and just asking, how often do we just get bogged down with the things of life that we do not think about the mission that Christ has left us on as a church to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to this dying world. So Paul trains, he praises, he entrusts, but also he visits and strengthens. He visits and strengthens. Paul sets sail from Ephesus, and his strategy is to maintain good links with the church, the church being the church at Jerusalem, because at the day of Pentecost, this is where it all began, with the Gentiles, the Gentile churches, and those who have just come to faith. And so Paul is going to Jerusalem, most likely updating them on what has happened in the past 18 months at Corinth. Then he goes back to home base at Antioch. Probably what a wonderful reunion he's experiencing there as we, he is with the people. And not too much longer he is there, and he's off again to Asia, Galatia and Phrygia. And this time the Spirit does not prevent him. And in verse 23, we see how he, our, our passage is ending here with Paul. He's spending some time there. He departs and he goes to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And this is, again, where we see this idea of training. Paul did not just start the church and leave it. He comes back. He's strengthening the disciples so that they would be stronger, more faithful, and better equipped to do the ministry. And this is the discipleship we're talking about, pouring his life into others so that they become more like Christ. Now, I want us to reflect a little bit as we look at Paul. The reality is none of us are Paul. We're not an apostle. We haven't been commissioned by Christ himself. We don't live in the first century. So what in the world does this have to do with us? How can this apply to our life? Well, as we think about Paul being on mission, yes, he's an apostle, but Christ gives and commissions the church to do something. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. The church is part of this. To proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. 
And so, we see also in the New Testament passages just like Titus 2. And so the question I want to ask is who in our midst do you see that you can pour into? Because the idea of training is continuing not only in the training up of specifically somebody to be an evangelizer like Priscilla and Aquila and a teacher of the gospel, but there's also training we read in Titus 2. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. They're to teach what is good and what? So train the young woman to love their husbands and children. Likewise, Paul says, let the older men urge or implore the younger men to be self-controlled. There's training that is happening. There's time that we're spending with people that we're modeling that we're given opportunity to serve, that we're teaching. There's some examples I thought of as a home group leader who is training someone who is eager and teaching them how to lead a home group. A seasoned father who's training a younger father. Someone who's good at evangelism in the church, who knows how to spark up conversations, is training others who are struggling with it. And the question is, who isn't, right? A seasoned musician who trains another not only how to play music, but understand biblical worship and what it means to worship God daily. A preacher who trains younger preachers, like Pastor Rod who goes to Bolivia and goes to Ukraine and does what? He goes and trains so that they continue the ministry that is there. You see, this would mean that if you are training other people in the church and the various aspects of body life, you are reading books together. You're studying the Bible. You're spending time in each other's homes. You're modeling what it looks like. You're correcting whenever it's necessary. You're practicing in the field. You're assigning service and tasks that people can do. You see, this is what we all long for. and This is why my wife two weeks ago, a weeks ago bought a course from an Instagram influencer mom who's a believer, <laughs> and she's the oldest of 11 children to do what? to be trained and to learn how to run the household well. You see, we all desire to be more like Christ in various aspects, and training can happen here. Now, if Paul might not be as relatable to us, we find a family on mission, Aquila and Priscilla, who are tent makers. They're simple people. <laughs> when we look at Jesus' model, we see the same thing. Simple folk doing God's work. James and John, fishermen. Not synagogue leaders, fishermen. Matthew, a religious and societal reject. He's not welcomed by the common mass. But Jesus had a plan. He uses indigenous people to do gospel ministry and spread the glory of Christ. And so Aquila and Priscilla is our family team. This is our second group of people that we're looking at. They are on mission. And I call them the blue-collar workers because they're tent makers who turned missionaries. So what do we learn about them? A few things that I want to highlight that is not in our text, but we can find in our context. And the first thing is this, they are eager to learn. They're eager to learn. And in discipleship, there's this acronym that's used called, you need to be fat in discipleship. Anyone heard of that before? You need to be fat. You need to be faithful. You need to be available. And you need to be teachable. And the first thing we see here is Faithfulness. Somewhere in between Paul finding Achille and Priscilla in verse 2 of chapter 18 and leaving to Ephesus, they tag-teamed with him on mission. And faithfulness is one of the key descriptions of someone who serves in the church. It's not ability, it's not competence, but faithfulness. Being there in the thick and the thin, not fading when things get hard. 
This is exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will able to teach others also. So Paul, four generations, Paul teaching someone else and trusting to faithful men who will then teach others also. See, we don't know when in the one and a half years that this couple joined Paul in ministry, but probably during a conversation as they're making tents, Paul sharing the gospel. For Corinth was having a lot of economic growth at the time. We know that many believed. In verse 8 of this chapter, we read that Crispus believes. And we also read many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So there's much work to be done. Later on, we see that the couple is using their house as a meeting place. As we read Corinthians, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house. So they've already had a church in their house, a gathering where they met. They were faithful. They began with Paul and they continued in the ministry many years later. They were available because we see here that they go with Paul out of Corinth, which was a booming economic place, and they go to Ephesus. They didn't say, well, our business is doing well. We're comfortable here and we're going to stay. They go with Paul and they're teachable. Now, I want to highlight that not only are they eager to learn, but they're ready to instruct. And this gets into our next verses here in verse 24 and onward as we meet another character named Apollos. And we see here in verse 26, we're just going to jump further into the text, but we're going to come back again into it. But we're going to jump further in verse 26. We see that they are correcting. They're ready to instruct Apollos. They're not being passive. They are moving into helping Apollos. Now, Apollos only knew of the baptism of John, as we read, a baptism of, of repentance. And think about it, he is fervently trying to persuade Jews to trust in Jesus as a promised Messiah. He is trying to shoot with no ammunition. He is teaching a baptism of repentance, not knowing probably Jesus' death and resurrection or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, persuading Jews to trust in Christ. He has a deficient theology, and Aquila and Priscilla see that. He is speaking boldly, and they're probably thinking, this is dangerous. A bold speaker plus bad theology equals leading people astray. And so what do they do? They take him aside, aside and they expound, they explain, they elaborate. They didn't know who Apollos was, but they knew what they were supposed to do. They see a fellow zealous believer who doesn't even know about the resurrection baptism, and they don't write him off. They commit to actually teaching him. They understand that he is going to have a greater gospel impact. And this is what happens when, after they instruct him and correct him in the right way in Ephesus, he actually goes back to Achaia, where Corinth was, and continues to be a powerful proclaimer of the gospel there. They are training the one whom the multitudes are going to follow. Now, when we see a person who is maybe not in our camp, what is our attitude toward them? Or someone who might be a little bit off in their theology. Do we say, ah, they won't listen anyways. Why should I even bother? Or are we eager to say, God can use them, and is there a way that I can teach or train or encourage them to be used by God more effectively. Because we might not be going to Ikea. We might not be going to India or Pakistan or Brazil, but they might. And this is, what, and this is exactly what's happening with, with Apollos. He goes to Corinth. 
So they prepare him for a vigorous and effective ministry. And this is Discipleship 101. Now, how do they do this? It said here in the second half of verse 26, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is a sweet thing. It's done privately, not publicly. This is the idea that New Testament believers, what we're called to do, speak the truth in love. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And this is an example that we ought to follow, correcting someone so that their life is a clearer testimony of the gospel and gospel message. I want to say that again. The, the work of correction and of training is there so that a person, a Christian's life, who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, their life begins to look more like and be more imitative of Christ so that their testimony of the gospel is more clear. Now, on a practical level, what we see here in this couple is that they are working together. This is a, a, a picture here that we see of men and women who are explaining God's word to each other in private or informal settings without violating 1 Timothy 2.12. Now, they're eager to learn, they're ready to instruct, but they're also quick to help. In verse 27, we see, when he wished to cross to Ikea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So, Apollos is really eager. We know that he's just passionate. He wants to move on, but there's one thing that's going to be a barrier. Nobody knows him. Nobody knows Apollos in Ikea. Nobody knows Apollos in Corinth, but who do they know really well? Priscilla and Aquila who were there for 18 months. And so they're concerned for his further ministry. They recognize his potential and they feel a responsibility to write a letter of recommendation. You see, there was no Instagram messenger. There was no email. There wasn't no Facebook. They could look up his profile and see who he is. There was no LinkedIn. Although his bio would probably read, strong preacher of the word, versed in the scriptures, refuting the Jews and proving Jesus to be the Christ. <laughs> they couldn't look that up and find anything about Apollos. So there had to be this letter of recommendation. So the purpose, for the purpose of gospel growth, they write it so that they can welcome him. Do you see how this strategic partnership and discipleship is an effective tool for gospel growth? He's at Corinth and he's preaching there. There's this interdependence of the churches, the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth. This is what Luke is also highlighting. So what do we see is the fruit of Paul training Aquila and Priscilla? The first fruit that we see is that they are covering more ground geographically. Aquila and Priscilla can be in Ephesus while Paul is moving on to Jerusalem and then Antioch and then Galatia. And then secondly, when someone is trained, they can correct wrong theology. They can teach others to handle Scripture properly. As we think about family on mission, I, I thought of this paradigm, and when we think about family, that sometimes we have different views of what it looks like for my family to be on mission. And so I want to look at just various views and pictures. I want to look at a few, a few of them. There's three of them. And the first one is family and mission. When we think about family and mission, what we see here is an isolation. It's family and mission. I'm a family. We have a mission. It's two separate things. I do my family, and then when I have time, maybe I'll do the mission. Or what we've also seen in ministry, I'm going to do the mission, 
typically with pastors who then sacrifice their family for the mission. Family and mission is seen as two separate entities. The next idea or picture that we can see is family as mission. My mission is family. And that leads to idolatry. Idolizing your family and you're doing everything just for your family, neglecting mission in the church and outside of the church. Yes, we believe the priority is your family. You should do that. But let that not be the end of your mission. Let that be the beginning and moving further. And this is what I think leads to the third one. It's family on mission, which is integrated. Family on mission is integrated. How can I, as a family like Priscilla and Aquila, use my gifts, use my abilities, use my time to work in my family, but be a family that's on mission, being used by Christ to continue to spread the gospel? You see, there's two institutions that God has blessed in the Bible. It's the church and it's the family. And in the very beginning, do we recall that it was the family that God gave the commission to rule and have dominion over the earth. Family as the channel that God used, the husband and wife team and the children. How often do we think of our family as on mission? Now, a few reflection questions I want to ask you is, how are we using our family for the greater good of the gospel? How are we using our family for the greater good of the gospel? How are we using our resources that God has given us as a family for the greater good of the gospel or discipleship? Are we ready and willing to open up our home to have other people come over? Are we ready and willing to have one of the spouses stay at home with the children so the other can go and meet with somebody else to teach them, whether it is in the music ministry or in the home group ministry or whatever it is? What last question I do want to ask out of this section is what we see Aquila and Priscilla doing. Are we in a state of watching out for others in the church? And also outside, maybe those we don't know of. And what I mean by this is Aquila and Priscilla, they saw Apollos, and they didn't just write him off and say, well, he's, he's preaching the baptism of John. <laughs> what they do is they come alongside him, and they speak truth and love, and they help him. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And this is what... We are called to do as a church. Now, let's go back one more time through these same verses, 24 through 28, and let's look at our final character, Apollos. What we see here is a contrast of two single men. In the first section of 18 to 23, it's Paul. In the next section, it's Apollos. There are similarities among them. They're both Jews. They're both educated. They're both bold speakers. They're both like to prove that the Christ is Jesus in the synagogues, but there's one difference. One of them is trained and the other is not. One has been doing this for years and the other has just started. And so let's look at Apollos. And I named Apollos the professor and evangelist, or quote-unquote the college professor, because he came out of Alexandria, which was a very educated city, and he turned gospel proclaimer. So, Apollos arrives in Ephesus, and a little bit of background about Ephesus because this is where our next texts are going to take place. Ephesus had around 300,000 people that lived there. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, and it was the most important commercial center. It had a large harbor, so naturally Ephesus grew wealthy. 
And it had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. So it attracted a lot of visitors. And I was thinking about this. I was like, this is modern day San Francisco. Everyone's showing up to see a bridge that's painted red. Wow. <laughs> Everyone coming to see the beautiful sight. San Francisco still tops the cities of most visited cities in the world. And we live here and we drive by and we're like, what is there to see? So this is where Apollos is at. He is at Ephesus. There's a lot of co huge commercial trade. There's a lot of visitors. And so could you imagine what gospel impact would be happening here with the right preacher? And the right preacher who's not preaching just the baptism of John, but preaching the baptism of Christ and calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We already saw that he's a man with an incomplete message. And this is what Luke is highlighting. We want to look at all of the details and all of the details that we see about Apollos are going to help us understand his later ministry. And so first, let's look at his background in the first two verses. He is first a man from Alexandria. Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the leading intellectual and cultural center. He, it had a museum with a 400,000 volume library. In Alexandria is where also the Septuagint was translated, meaning the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek. And this is where Apollos is from, a very educated city. In his background, he's also an eloquent man. He has some education. He had some formal education because it says here he had been instructed, he'd been formally taught for some ongoing period of time in the way of the Lord. Now, the way of the Lord is in the way of Christ. In the ongoing background, he was taught about the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ. And when we speak about the way, we're speaking about Christ. In Acts 9, we read about Paul, right, who asked him for letters for, to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. And he's also one who's powerful or competent in the scriptures, which meant he had the potential to be an influential teacher of the faith. So this is Apollos' background. He's a man from Alexandria. He's an eloquent man. And Luke continues to unravel more details to us about him. Although he is all these things, he'd been instructed, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, meaning the life of Christ. Though he knew, and here is a key that Luke wants to, us to see, though he knew only the baptism of John. This is what Luke is pointing out. There's something that is lacking. Although he's a passionate and evangelistic man, he may not have known about Jesus' death and resurrection, about the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. You see, the baptism of John was only preparatory. It's looking forward. Looking forward to the Messianic era, and not specifically a means of acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, or acknowledging the benefits of Christ's work on the cross. He's an eloquent, educated man, but a man with an incomplete message. And once again, a bold speaker plus bad theology leads people astray and ultimately doesn't lead them to the finish line. And this is what we see here. It would probably have been really confusing and misleading if he only offered converts the baptism of John. And so, as we already studied, Achille and Priscilla hear him, they take him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. They explain to him about Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension. 
When he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the baptism of, not repentance, but of faith after you believe in Christ, you're baptized as a symbol to show that you belong to Christ. This was administered to all believers on and after the day of Pentecost. We read it in chapter 2 of Acts. Those who received his word were baptized. They received the word, they received the saving message of the gospel, and then they were baptized. In chapter 8, verse 12, we read about Philip who preached the good news, and they were baptized, both men and women. So the gospel goes out, people believe, and then they're baptized, and this is what they had to teach Apollos about. They had to correct them in this. And they train him so that his ministry will be fruitful. And he desires to move on to Achaia. And we see here in his ministry, as he continues in verses 27 and 28, he wishes to go to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples, write this welcome letter, that when he arrives, he could be useful, right? And so, we see in his ministry, first he is helping. In his ministry, he is a helping man. So his background, his need, and now his ministry. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Luke oftentimes goes to an ex extra step to just add this idea that they believed through grace. It wasn't by no other way they believed. It was by grace that they had believed. It was Christ's saving grace. Because proper theology has a huge impact on lives. Right theology live, leads to right living. And so he greatly helped them. Because he was powerful in the scriptures, because he had been trained and corrected by Achille and Priscilla, and he continues to be of great use. And now so he transitions from Ephesus and moves into Corinth to do this ministry. And he's also refuting. He's a zealous man. It says here that he powerfully refuted. The Jews agreed with Christians that there was to be a Messiah, but they didn't agree that Christ was the Messiah. That Christ, that the Messiah was Jesus. And this is what, this is what Apollos is doing. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now I was wondering and thinking, what would have happened if Achille and Priscilla didn't step in? What would have been of the ministry of Apollos? How far would he have been able to go? I thought to myself, do we understand, as we were reflecting, the impact that training can have? Do we understand the impact that training can have? Apollos was in a major city in Ephesus with lots of trade and travelers. He does his ministry there. There's a lot of work to be done there. And then he moves to Corinth. And so we don't underestimate how God can work. Now, in conclusion, we see that many hands make light work. That Christ's plan all along was multiplication. In conclusion, we see that Many hands make light work. Christ took 12 men, and with 12 men, he turned the world upside down. 12 simple men, fishermen, tax collectors. Christ then uses Paul. Christ uses blue-collar couple, Achille and Priscilla. Christ uses an educated single man, Apollos. In between all of this, we see Paul following the model of Christ, training men and women for ministry. Now, as I think about this, this has more to do with Christ's power and Christ's work than about the men and women that are used. 
It goes to show how Christ, through the, through the church, right, he is showing his manifold wisdom. This is not about us. It's about him. It's about him building his church and that the mission will not fail for he is all-powerful. Christ has been doing this. Paul has been taking the model of Christ and implementing it. And the question becomes now, are we as a church going to continue in that same model where we take a few and train them so that the multitudes may follow those who are trained? What about us? How are we doing in training disciples? I want to ask a couple of questions. What kind of disciples are we making as a church? The two categories. We could be making the frying pan disciples, the ones that are, look like they're done on the outside and they're fried, but they're raw on the inside, or crockpot disciples who take time, who, who you need a lot of sometimes uh, tears that you cry over and the agony of heart with Paul saying, when is Christ going to be formed in you? Right? This is the work of discipleship. This is the work of training. And I think this passage challenges us to do our part, to not be passive, to commit to the biblical discipleship as a key element in partnership for gospel growth. So are we spending time with people? Are we coming alongside people, training them, putting in the necessary years, the years, key word, years that are needed, the months that are needed? We see that churches should be gardens and farms. Another illustration that would help us understand this. Churches should be gardens and farms. The idea is we are to be planting ourselves and growing our people from within the church. Organically, organically it happening. Remember, before we're going to send off people to do, quote, chores in the home of the family, they must be trained. We've heard and we know of examples of when churches go out and seek for a pastor, an associate pastor, and they go on a search committee and try to find somebody. And because the person is not organically grown within the church, they come and they look like they're all good, like they're going to fit really well. And we already know what the end of that can be. It doesn't always work out. So at Gateway Bible Church, are we focusing on organically growing people from within the church and the various ministries that we are part of? Are we duplicating ourselves in the places that we're currently serving? Second question I want to ask is, what legacy are we leaving for our church? I believe that this is the biggest missing element that we see in American Christianity today. It is why churches are closing their doors. This is why I believe the statistic is like 2,500 churches close each year, although about the same amount are planted each year. But why do they close? The reason why most churches close is because this aspect, or even just discipleship in general, is not happening. There is no outreach. There is no follow-up. There is growth happening, but there is no training. And so when one person leaves who was doing a lot of ministry, there's not anybody else who is duplicated to be able to continue and press on in the ministry. So will Gateway Bible Church still be here in 50 years, led by strong men and women of the faith who are passing on the baton of the gospel to the next generation, who have been trained over years and even decades to continue gospel ministry? Or is the church going to be left stranded doing search committees? Or like I've already mentioned, there are churches who don't practice this and doors close. This is an important and vital aspect in discipleship, this aspect of training. And this is what we see here, and this is what we see in the book of Acts as the gospel is going forward and there's strategic partnership. There has to be training before the partnership begins. 
And so are you committed this morning? Are you committed to biblical discipleship? Seeing that it's not only you're a disciple of Christ by sharing the gospel and by growing as a believer, but you're a disciple of Christ by duplicating and training others to do the same work. I want to close with this quote. You can follow along with me on the screen. As we finish our time in our pastors this morning, I want to read this. The church must go back to the blueprint that the designer of the church has given. He has clearly laid it all out in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The mission will not fail for he's all-powerful. Making disciples is the core and sole work of the church. It begins with outreach, moves to follow-up, matures through growth and training. If the church exists for the glory of the triune God and the model has been presented by the head of the church, then all our thinking, then all our feeling, then all our acting must be governed for this sole reason to make disciples and the power of the Spirit for the exaltation of Christ to the glory of the Father. And may the Lord help us in this work. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you continually remind us through this book of Acts that we as the church in the 21st century continue to carry the light of the gospel in the place that we live in. That we continue to do the work of discipleship. That we continue to proclaim the gospel so people come to faith. That we continue to grow as disciples and as followers of you but that, Lord, you would not want us to stop there, but, but you would desire that we would train others to do the ministry. So may you help us in this, Lord. Thank you for your word that encourages us. Thank you for your word that opens our eyes to behold the wonderful, your wonderful truths. We ask that you would implant these truths in our hearts and that you would continue to challenge us from your word as we continue to be under it week by week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.